Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Life is full of what ifs, some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn DeWire, and this is Fatal Feuds. Part 3, The Bruce Invasion. This episode picks up the story where the last show ended as a massive invasion force from Scotland landed in Ulster in May 1315. What is about to unfold in the following 30 or so minutes is a fascinating account of one of the largest and most destructive wars in medieval Irish history. As dawn broke over Ireland on May the 27th, 1315, the Red Earl of Ulster, Richard de Burgh, surely must have thought that the Scots' invasion of his territories in the northeast of Ireland was a nightmare, one that would be brought to an end by the fresh morning air and daylight. However, it quickly dawned on him that it was all too real. The previous day, a vast invasion fleet had appeared on the horizon off the coast of Ulster, While the Norman colonists in Ireland were caught off guard, they immediately knew who and what they were facing. The King of Scotland, Robert the Bruce, had been at war with the King of England, who relied heavily on the Norman colony in Ireland for support, so it made sense that Bruce would, at some point, carry his war to Ireland. However, for the Red Earl, this invasion was deeply personal. As the morning light sobered his sleepy judgment, his thoughts can only have turned to rage anger and bitterness. That Robert the Bruce would do this to the Red Earl showed a certain lack of decency. In 1302, the Red Earl had, after all, married his daughter, Elizabeth, to Bruce, who was then fighting for the English kings. Four years later, in 1306, Bruce had switched sides, claiming the throne of Scotland for himself. But even after this act of treachery, the Red Earl had shown restraint with his son-in-law, While de Burgh remained loyal to his king in England, he had stubbornly refused to travel to fight Bruce in Scotland. But now, in 1315, Robert the Bruce had repaid him by bringing the war to Ulster. Angry as he was, there was no better man than the Red Earl of Ulster to match sword for sword, however. Over the last twenty years, he and his cousin, William Leah de Burgh, had built up one of the most impressive war machines in Northern Europe with an ability to call on hundreds of Norman vassals and a complex web of Gaelic-Irish allies for support. As time passed, his anger gave way to steely determination. Bruce would regret this attack on his father-in-law. If he wasn't there already on the morning of the 27th of May, 
the Red Earl was heading to the west of Ireland to raise the greatest army he could to drive the invaders back into the sea. Large-scale resistance in Ulster had proven impossible given the sheer size of the Scottish army facing the colonists there. To defeat such a huge host, the Red Earl would need a force numbering in the thousands and the only place he could marshal such an army was in his lands in Connacht. As he headed west, he left what forces he had in Ulster under the command of the very capable Thomas de Mandeville, his representative or seneschal in the region. On arriving in Connacht, the Red Earl and his cousin William Leah spent June mustering all the available forces they could and preparations went according to plan. However, they were undoubtedly concerned about what was happening back in Ulster. While Thomas de Mandeville was loyal to a fault, there were questions hanging over some of the other Norman vassals in the region, those with deep ancestral connections to Scotland, such as the Bissett family. Worryingly, there had been evidence of contact between some of these families and Robert the Bruce. In early 1315, seven Scots and a certain Henry described as a messenger of Robert the Bruce had been taken prisoner. Who they were meeting or what they were doing in Ireland was never clear. Despite this, the early reports emerging from the north can only have calmed the Red Earl's nerves. The Scots fleet had successfully landed along the coast at Larne and marched on Carrickfergus, the principal settlement in Ulster. However, Thomas de Mandeville had raised what forces he could and had attacked the Scots almost immediately. Hopelessly outnumbered, the Red Earl's vassals under de Mandeville were easily swept aside by Bruce and his army. But the fact that members of the Logan, Savage and even one prominent member of the Bissett family were all present indicated that most, if not all, Normans in Ulster were going to remain loyal, for the time being at least. While their attack on the Scots was brave, if foolhardy, there was little the colonists could do to stop the Scots making inroads in Ulster and Carrickfergus, the major port in the region, fell almost immediately. However, in more good news for the de Burgh family, the garrison of the castle that overlooked the harbour and the town refused to yield. These early signs of staunch resistance in Ulster were tempered though by the reports emerging that Bruce was finding allies. While the Normans were standing with de Burgh, the same could not be said for the Gaelic Irish. They rallied to Edward Bruce, the brother of the King of Scotland, who was leading the invasion. Indeed, while he remained at Carrickfergus in June, no less than twelve Gaelic kings arrived and pledged their support to him. Then it seems almost certain that it was there, at Carrickfergus, an incredible ceremony took place. One that not only sent shudders up the Red Earl's spine, but terrified all Normans in Ireland. Donal O'Neill, the king of the O'Neill family, and one of the most important figures in Gaelic Ireland, arrived to support the Bruces. Now this, in itself, was hardly surprising given Donal's track record of antipathy toward the Normans. However, Donal went further than any other king did when he supported Bruce. He not only pledged military aid to the Scots, but was also willing to lay down his claim to the High Kingship of Ireland in favour of Edward Bruce. This was a truly extraordinary move. While there hadn't really been a High King in around 150 years, Don O'Neill was one of the few men alive that had a really strong claim. This was now passed on to Edward Bruce, who was inaugurated as High King of Ireland at Carrickfergus, 
although some sources claim it did happen a little later in Louth. This news not only illustrated that the Scots were planning on a permanent presence in Ireland, but it would also undoubtedly create unrest among Gaelic-Irish families across the island. Bruce was clearly raising their banner, so to speak. After gaining the support of these Gaelic-Irish allies in Ulster, the main Scottish army and their allies left Carrickfergus and began to march south. They unleashed extreme destruction and violence, something that would become a hallmark of their campaigns in Ireland. They burned the town of Rathmore in South Antrim, where they faced resistance as they pushed through the narrow pass known as the Gap of the North. The Scots forced their way through into the Norman lordship of Louth. From there they avoided the heavily fortified Roach Castle, launching a direct assault on the poorly defended town of Dundalk on June the 29th. This first assault on a major town in Ireland was extremely violent. The Franciscan friary in the town was plundered and torched, while many of the population were put to the sword. Meanwhile, huge swathes of countryside were being burned as they marched south. After all, one of the main Scottish war aims was to destroy the Norman colony that had been so integral to the King of England's war effort against their homeland. However, while the Scots had enjoyed a free hand for the first two months and faced no serious opposition, this was all about to change as the Red Earl of Ulster, Richard de Burgh, was ready to march against them. Once the Scots landed, the Norman colonists had immediately set about countering the invasion. In the west of Ireland, the Red Earl of Ulster and his cousin William Leah de Burgh began to call on their vassals for support. Riders were sent across the west, telling them to gather under the Red Earl's banners and march north. The site they chose for the army to gather was carefully picked in Roscommon, while this was relatively central in Connacht, allowing Normans from across the region to reach the location easily. Crucially, it was located close to the heart of the territory of their main Gaelic allies in the west, the O'Connor family. The de Burghs undoubtedly wanted to ensure that the King of the O'Connors would fulfil the Pledge of Allegiance he owed to the Red Earl. This King, Phelim O'Connor, did arrive at the army camp with a massive force to serve alongside the Norman cohorts. Eventually, when this great army had finally been assembled, they set out crossing the Shannon River at Atlone in early July and marched northwards towards Louth to confront Edward Bruce and his Scottish army. While the de Burghs had been busy raising forces, in the west of Ireland, the just this year, that's the King's representative, Edmund Butler, had been travelling across the south and east, raising another army, and they set out north around the same time as the de Burghs left the west. On July the 22nd, nearly two months since the Scots had landed, the two great Norman armies, one led by the Red Earl and the other led by Edmund Butler, met in the Schlievebra Hills, about 25 miles south of where Edward Bruce's army was encamped at Inishkeen. This joint army was perhaps one of the biggest forces ever gathered in Ireland, numbering several thousand men between them. Confidence must have been sky high. With big numbers, fighting on home territory, the advantage was certainly theirs. In the hills overlooking the ravaged lordship of Louth that had been burned by Bruce, a war council was convened between Richard de Burgh and Edmund Butler. In this meeting, one of the most important decisions of the entire war was taken. When the Red Earl laid out his strategy, it was surprising, to say the least. He informed Edmund Butler that he did not want or need his help. He argued, or rather stated, given his power, 
that he would resolve the problem himself. De Burgh knew only too well that medieval armies were notoriously unruly. Indeed, Butler's army had already run amok in the suburbs of Dublin on the march north, and the Red Earl did not want his lands in Ulster further damaged than they already were. Furthermore, he presumably wanted to score a great victory on his own, rather than having Butler there to share the glory. Eben Butler, for his part, presumably had little desire to fight if he didn't have to. With harvest fast approaching, he and the other Norman lords of the south were keen to return home. Indeed, there was scarcely a more important harvest than the one facing the colonists in 1315. Major food shortages were clearly on the way, given the poor weather in the previous months, so what food they could gather would be vitally important. Furthermore, they knew only too well that these same food shortages would provoke the Gaelic-Irish, already forced to live on the margins of society, into raiding the Norman colony for food. Butler and his army needed to return home to defend their kith and kin. So it was, having made the decision that de Burgh would continue on alone and that Butler's army would be disbanded, they wasted no time. On the following day of July the 23rd, the Red Earl continued his march north in pursuit of Bruce. His son-in-law, John de Birmingham, who had come north with Butler, was the only one to continue with him. Setting up camp close to Bruce's position, the largest battle, perhaps in Irish history to that date, seemed inevitable. Indeed, even before the great battle was joined, skirmishes were breaking out between the two armies. William Lea de Burgh, always a commander to lead from the front, saw Edward Bruce and tried to catch him unawares. He launched an attack, but it failed and a few were killed on both sides. The advantage clearly lay with the de Burghs now. Edward Bruce and his army were in a weak position in Louth, strategically speaking. Their supply lines into Ulster were long and vulnerable, and in 1315 this situation was exacerbated by the early stages of what was developing into the worst famine of the Middle Ages. Facing such an impressive army, Bruce had little choice but to retreat, and on Donal O'Neill's advice, the Scots retraced their movements, returning north into Ulster. While de Burgh no doubt thought he now had them on the ropes, the Scots weren't giving up just yet. While they marched north, they didn't head to the port of Carrickfergus. Instead, they turned west, following the river Ban north to Coleraine. There they crossed the river, destroying the bridge behind them. Then, along the banks of the river, they camped in what was a more defensible position. With the river protecting them, their logistical problem was also eased. The O'Neills, with their territories in nearby Tyrone, were able to bring up supplies. Meanwhile, Richard de Burgh, furious at this point, had followed in hot pursuit. His territories in Ulster were utterly devastated by this point, with large armies moving back and forth through them. According to the annals of Ulster, the armies left neither wood nor corn nor crop nor barn nor church, but fired and burned them all. However, on reaching Coleraine, the Red Earl could not get at the Bruce army, as they had destroyed the bridge over the River Ban. A sort of phony war developed through August. In what was a very wet year, the River Ban was in flood and neither army could cross and launch a full-scale attack. This situation favoured Bruce. While he was being supplied by the O'Neills, the de Burgh army was now living in a territory that had been burned and destroyed by Bruce's forces before they retreated across the river. This made life extremely difficult. However, this was not the only problem facing the de Burghs. While the two armies camped on either side of the Ban, Edward Bruce had not been idle. 
he spent the month of August fermenting internal tensions in the Deberg army camp. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In July 1315, pretty much all fighting men loyal to the Debergs in the west of Ireland had been mobilised and marched to Ulster. This had included Phelan O'Connor, the king of the O'Connor family. However, as we've seen in the series, all Gaelic kings had their internal rivals, and Phelan was no different. While he had ruled the West with the support of the de Burghs, his cousin, Rory O'Connor, had always opposed him. In July 1315, while Edward Bruce was camped on the west side of the ban, Phelan's bitter enemy, this Rory O'Connor, arrived to meet with the Scot. Bruce encouraged Rory to attack the undefended de Burgh lands in Connacht, but strangely told him to leave the lands of Phelan unmolested. This illustrated either a deep Machiavellian streak in Bruce, or perhaps just a naivety about Gaelic politics. There was no way that Rory would leave Phelan's lands alone. He did not just want to attack the Norman settlements, he ultimately wanted to take Phelan's crown as King of the O'Connors. So, at Edward Bruce's urging, Rory now returned to the West, but naturally began to attack Phelan's supporters and territories, as well as the Normans, and subsequently he went on to claim that he was the rightful king of the O'Connors. This may have been Bruce's plan all along, because once word of what was happening in the West reached the Burgh's army camp, the soldiers went wild. Phelan O'Connor, fuming, met with the Red Earl and demanded he march the entire army back to Connacht to establish control. In all reality, the Red Earl was never going to do this. He couldn't walk away from the fight, but a little option other than to release Phelan, who now marched his army back to Connacht. This was a serious blow. The O'Connors were a significant part of the de Burgh army that had marched north. Slowly, in the late summer, the situation was turning against de Burgh. While the Red Earl had lost Phelan, the famine conditions in the region surrounding his army camp were worsening with each passing week. They began to take their toll on the army, and by late August it was clear he needed to withdraw from the ban and find provisions elsewhere. Eventually, in the last weeks of the month, they broke camp and started to march east. However, en route, further dire news of Rory O'Connor's attacks on Norman settlements up and down Connacht reached Ulster. 
The West was ablaze and the families of the soldiers in de Burgh's camp were dying. This sowed dissension and the Red Earl suffered a terrible blow when he woke one morning to find that one of his own cousins, Walter Catus de Burgh, had left under the cover of darkness, supposedly bringing 3,000 soldiers with him, according to one account. At this point, the Red Earl can only have been beginning to regret his decision to rebuff Edmund Butler. As the morale of his own troops plummeted, he knew he had to do something before his army simply melted away before his eyes. Soon, the opportunity presented itself. Edward Bruce, having sown dissension amongst the Burgh's army, knew that his time to strike had come. The Scottish sea captain Thomas Dunn brought a small fleet up the river Ban, and the army was transferred back to the east bank from where they could now pursue de Burgh. Thirty miles away, the Red Earl, at a place called Connor, outside Ballymena, decided that this was his moment too. He could raise the morale of his forces by turning to face Bruce, and in early September, this is exactly what he did. The game of cat and mouse being played since July was finally going to come to an end. Edward Bruce would have his steel tested against a serious army for the first time. On September the 10th at Connor, the two forces clashed. Amidst blood, barbarism and the sound of steel and suffering, Edward Bruce inflicted the worst defeat on the de Burgh family in their long history. Terrible consequences flowed from this battle. While thousands were killed, William Leah de Burgh, the most important battle commander the family possessed, and the man who had been to the fore in all their campaigns in Connacht, was seriously injured, taken captive, and in the following weeks shipped to Scotland. While the Red Earl himself escaped and headed west, there was nothing he could do for the dead and dying on the battlefield of Connor, or indeed his Ulster vassals. The Scots were undoubtedly now masters of his lands in Ulster. His best hopes lay in his lordship of Connor, where he undoubtedly hoped and prayed that the situation had improved since Phelan O'Connor and his cousin, Walter de Burgh, had returned back west. While the Red Earl left the battlefield dejected and broken, there were others there, though, who could look over that field strewn with the corpses of the dead and see great hope and achievement. Edward Bruce, that would-be High King of Ireland, had just seen his chances increase dramatically. He had defeated one of the biggest and best armies Norman Ireland could put into the field. However, the man who perhaps could take most from the battle was Donal O'Neill, the King of Tyrone. For decades he and his kind had argued the Gaelic Irish should adopt an aggressive attitude to the Normans. For this they had paid a heavy price. Donal's father, Brian, had been killed at the Battle of Down in 1260 and Donal himself had suffered terrible defeats. But now, in September 1315, he had been instrumental in destroying the power of the de Burgh family in Ulster. This was a somewhat incredible achievement. In the space of a few weeks during that summer, the de Burghs had been shattered. The Scots were now firmly in control of the earldom of Ulster, save one beleaguered outpost, Carrickfergus Castle, on the shores of Belfast Loch, which would not yield to the Scots. Meanwhile, as the Red Earl made his way west to Connacht in the hopes of perhaps raising a new army, the news that confronted him about developments there was even more disastrous. Before the Battle of Connor had been fought, Phelan O'Connor and the Red Earl's own cousin, Walter Catus de Burgh, had left to try and establish order in the west. No doubt, as the Red Earl followed them in the aftermath of his defeat, he had hoped to find peace had returned, 
to his lands in Connacht. This was wishful thinking. Both Phelim and Walter Catus de Burgh, along with their armies, had been repeatedly harried and attacked as they had moved back west. Walter seems to have made no impact at all when he crossed the Shannon, while Phelim's army disintegrated before his eyes. With this move, his rival Rory had been firmly established as King of the O'Connors, and the family, from the perspective of the Red Earl at least, had been transformed from allies to enemies. When Richard de Burgh himself crossed the Shannon, presumably sometime in late September, the Normans of the province did rally to him, but if they thought they were going to find a battle commander that could take on the O'Connors, they were sorely mistaken. In a war council, the Normans of the West met with the Red Earl and also some Gaelic-Irish allies, chief among them, Phelim O'Connor. However, these were all generals with no armies, given that they had all suffered defeats. The meeting indeed seems to have been pitiful. When Maelrunig MacDermot, an ally of Phelim O'Connor's, turned up, the annals of Connacht tell us that he was ashamed and swore he would never be reckoned among the deposed kings in any house again. Indeed, he left and tried to make his peace with Rory O'Connor. The Burg power clearly had been smashed. They were well and truly defeated. The Red Earl himself was described as a wanderer up and down Ireland all this year, with no power or lordship. Richard, now aged 56, was an old man for the time. But a bigger problem lay in the fact that William Leah de Burg was in captivity. He was the family's main battle commander for the previous decades. He had terrorised the family's Gaelic Irish allies in the West, and his absence undoubtedly emboldened the likes of Rory O'Connor now attacking Norman settlements up and down the region. That winter of 1315 to 16 was a terrible time for the de Burgh family. Their lands in Ulster seemed lost, while a Connacht exploded in violence, which they, or their Norman vassals, could not contain. Phelim O'Connor had managed to rally some support, and he was now attacking back against Rory. To make matters worse, there was no hope of aid from other Norman lords in Ireland or the royal authorities. They all faced their own problems. After defeating the Red Earl in September, the Scots had marched south from Ulster again, burning Meath, and the Normans in Ireland seemed utterly incapable of stopping them. In December 1315, the Lord of Trim, Roger Mortimer, had tried to stop them, but his army disintegrated on the battlefield after some of his forces, led by Walter and Hugh de Lacey, had defected to Edward Bruce. Meanwhile, across the island, Gaelic-Irish revolts were breaking out. While this podcast focuses on the de Burgh family, the story of the entire war is covered in my latest book, 1348, A Medieval Apocalypse. It's available through my website, irishhistorypodcast.ie. As 1315 drew to a close, the Annals of Connacht reflected on the horrors of that terrible year in a suitably grim fashion with the line, Many afflictions in all parts of Ireland, very many deaths, famine and strange diseases, murders and intolerable storms as well. However, while the de Burghs had lost a battle, the war was far from over, but things were about to get even worse. The new year of 1316 opened as the civil war in the O'Connor family in the west of Ireland intensified. The two contenders for power, Rory and Phelim, had yet to meet in open battle, but that was clearly looming. This struggle illustrated how the wider dynamic in the west had been transformed. Only a few years earlier, the de Burghs had repeatedly decided the outcome of such encounters, and it was they who had chosen the rulers of the O'Connor family. 
Now the de Burgs could only hope and pray that Phelan O'Connor, their ally, would emerge victorious, and then the O'Connors would stop attacking Norman settlements. The great encounter took place on the 24th of February in Roscommon. Phelan, backed by some powerful Normans, including a branch of the de Birmingham family, had marched to meet Rory in battle. This encounter, fought in February, must have been intensely difficult. Thousands of men on the wet winter ground would have quickly churned up the terrain underfoot, creating mucky, swampy conditions. Nevertheless, in the ferocious encounter, Phelan emerged victorious, killing Rory. As word spread across Connacht that Phelan O'Connor had again taken power, the Norman settlers across the west undoubtedly breathed a sigh of relief, but this joy soon turned to horror. The situation in Connacht had dramatically changed since men like Phelan O'Connor had bent the knee and submitted to the de Burgs. It was the de Burgs who were on their knees now, and in reality they and the Normans had little to offer Phelan any more, since his arch-rival Rory was dead. Furthermore, with their talismanic battle commander William Leah de Burgh in captivity in Scotland, the Normans no longer commanded the fear they once had. Phelan, therefore, decided he would no longer bow to the de Burghs and that the O'Connors would once again be the kings of the West, like they had before the Norman invasion of the region in 1235. So he continued the policy of aggression and continued to devastate Norman settlements. Prominent Norman knights Stephen de Exeter, Miles de Cogan, William Prendergast and John Standen were killed. The Norman future in the west of Ireland now hung by a thread. During this time, the Red Earl seems to have taken up residence on lands he held around Rathoth, positioning him within a day's ride of both Dublin and Connacht, allowing him to influence events in both regions. While Connacht was literally imploding, he still had to pay attention to events in Ulster. While the Scots had taken every single fortress from Northburg on Loch Foyle to Greencastle on Carringford Loch, the defenders of Carrigfergus Castle in what was increasingly an important beacon of hope. They were also a major thorn in the side of the Scots. Carrickfergus was their main port in Ireland and the castle overlooking the harbour made life difficult and dangerous for the Bruce army. While the Red Earl himself was clearly beyond fighting, his seneschal in Ulster, Thomas de Mandeville, made a major attempt to relieve the beleaguered garrison. On Easter weekend, which fell in April 1316, he led a fleet which departed from Drogheda and set sail up the coast for Carrickfergus. Reaching the port unscathed, they forced the Scots back from the castle walls, killing around 30 before gaining entry. With a figure like the Mandeville, a man with a legendary reputation in Ulster, inside the walls, the spirits of the defenders can only have soared. Two days after he arrived, the Mandeville, not going to wait around for the Scots to starve him out, went on the offensive. The castle gates swung open and the defenders launched a major sortie into the Scottish siege lines in the adjoining town. While the castle garrison had not had so much hope in nine months of siege, this turned sour when the Mandeville himself was killed in the streets of Carrickfergus. This put an end to such acts of bravery. When word reached the Red Earl that de Mandeville was dead, he must have been totally dejected. All his life in Ireland, he had been heavily dependent on Thomas de Mandeville and William Leah de Burgh. Now he stood alone. While nothing could be done to bring back de Mandeville, the Red Earl, however, began to hatch a scheme to secure his cousin's freedom. This was controversial, ruthless and brutal. Between the summer of 1315 and the spring of 1316, the Red Earl had gone from one of the most powerful men in Ireland 
to being powerless. His lands in Ulster were under the control of the Scots, while in the west the O'Connors were slowly but surely driving the Normans from the region, pushing them back across the Shannon. He needed to get his cousin William Lea de Burgh back and quickly. Somehow contact was made with the Scots, and bizarrely they agreed to unleash the man that terrified the Gaelic Irish perhaps more than any other Norman. However, the price was truly astronomical. Even though the de Burghs needed William Lea back, the Red Earl surely balked at what the Scots were asking him to do. Nevertheless, he agreed. On July the 10th, 1316, the deal began in Drogheda. Along the docks of what was one of Ireland's busiest ports, eight supply ships were being loaded up with food for the garrison of Carrickfergus that had now been under siege for a year, but had remained loyal to de Burgh. The Red Earl, however, intervened and the eight ships were redirected to Scotland instead of Carrickfergus. This guaranteed the garrison would not and could not hold out. But this was the price of William Leah de Burgh's freedom. When the ships sailed up the North Channel between Scotland and Ireland, if the weather was clear, the defenders of Carrickfergus, now led by a man called Henry of Trapston, would have seen the supply ships heading towards Scotland. If they realised what was going on, the crushing sense of betrayal must have been shocking. With little option, this garrison under Henry of Trapston finally surrendered in the autumn of 1316, but not before they had resorted to cannibalism, eating the bodies of Scottish prisoners. Meanwhile, even though the food ships had reached Scotland, this was only part of the deal. Along with the food, the Scots demanded a hostage to replace William Leah in captivity, which would bind him to conditions they were about to impose on him before his release. In what were the harsh realities of life in Ireland at this time, the captive was William Leah de Burgh's one-year-old son, Edmund. Finally, before he was released, William had to agree to one condition, that he would never fight the Scots in Ireland again. This he agreed to, and in late July, nearly after one year in captivity, he set sail for Ireland. He arrived back to a land utterly changed. While in captivity, he undoubtedly did not know what to believe. Now he returned to find that the worst-case scenario was true. However, William Leah de Burgh was a very different character to the Red Earl. He was far more proactive. He had not spent his adult life fighting in the west of Ireland to allow Phelim O'Connor double-cross him. After all, it was William Leah de Burgh's swords that had allowed Phelim O'Connor succeed as king of the O'Connor family back in 1309 against widespread opposition. Once back on the island, he immediately set out for the west. He crossed the River Shannon into Connacht in late July and immediately tensions in the region soared. The Normans had their talismanic battle commander back. The Gaelic Irish were unnerved. But Phelim O'Connor was no fool. He knew if he could force William Leah de Burgh to battle quickly, he would easily outnumber him. Indeed, Phelim immediately marched on Athenry, where de Burgh was marshalling an army. This battle would obviously decide who ruled the West. If William Leah de Burgh was defeated and killed, the de Burghs were finished. If the O'Connors were beaten, it would be a game changer. Tune in to Fatal Feuds Part 4 to hear the outcome. Until next time, Sloan. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 